Today we are going to be talking about Isaiah. Yes, now don't put pause, don't skip this video. I promise that this is going to be possibly one of the most interesting uh, video lessons in this entire course. Uh, Nephi, in 1st Nephi, quotes several chapters in Isaiah. And for most members of the church, those are the ones they skip, right? When you get to the Isaiah portions of 1st and 2nd Nephi, it's like skip. If you get to the book of Isaiah in Old Testament, it's double skip. But today we are going to simplify Isaiah to a level that pretty much any member of the church should be able to understand. When I was growing up, my dad would always say that God's way is always simple to understand, even though it's really hard to do, right? It's hard to keep the commandments. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to learn how to overcome your weaknesses. But the gospel is simple. The adversary's plan, on the other hand, is always complicated, even though it's really easy to succumb to those weaknesses. He always makes things complicated. It's always there's some process and big, deep mystery that you can't understand unless you have a degree, unless you study it for years and years and years. But God's way is always simple. So when we think about the book of Isaiah, why do we always think it's complicated, right? Let's think about that for a minute. Because... Jesus Christ, when he came to the Nephites, this is right in 3rd Nephi, tells the Nephites, Behold, I say unto you that ye ought to search these things. Yea, a commandment I give unto you that ye search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah, end quote. When we look at Isaiah, and Isaiah seems so complicated, but God gave us Isaiah, we need, to, we need to take a pause for a minute and say, wait a minute, maybe we're not understanding this or approaching this book correctly because God gave us Isaiah and God speaks and God wants us to understand it and God speaks with simplicity and plainness. So first Nephi is powerful because Nephi is speaking to his brothers and he quotes several chapters of Isaiah. And then he walks through, this is in first Nephi 22, he literally explains the entire chapters. He says, this is exactly what Isaiah is talking about. This is what he's saying. And he explains it so simply, any of us can understand. So what we're going to do today is we are going to go through 1 Nephi. And Nephi is going to actually give us a foundation and a framework for interpreting Isaiah so that we can then take that framework and take that foundation and that simplification and then go into the rest of the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi or the entire book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And I hope that you'll be able to walk away from this realizing Isaiah is simple. So let's go ahead and let's dive in. So in 1 Nephi chapter 22, Nephi is talking to his brothers and this is what he says, quote, and now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had read these things which were engraven upon the plates of brass, these are two chapters in Isaiah that we're going to go into in a few minutes. He says, My brethren came unto me and said unto me, What meaneth these things which ye have read? Right? Can you relate to Laman and Lemuel and possibly Sam here? They're, they're saying, What in the world are you talking about here? They said, Behold, are they to be understood according to things which are spiritual? which shall come to pass according to the spirit and not the flesh. So basically what Laman and Lemuel are asking here is they're saying, 
what what are these Isaiah chapters? What are they talking about? And are they talking about actual historical events that are really going to happen? Or are they more spiritual principles that are intangible, you know, just concepts, philosophy? And Nephi says, quote, I Nephi said unto them, behold, they were manifest unto the prophet by the voice of the spirit. For by the Spirit are all things made known unto the prophets, which shall come upon the children of men according to the flesh. Wherefore, the things of which I have read are things pertaining to things both temporal and spiritual. So this is absolutely foundational. This is our first key in simplifying Isaiah. Nephi is saying here that these passages on Isaiah are not just spiritual, but they're actually temporal things. The house of Israel is not just a spiritual concept. If you go ask the evangelicals, if you ask other uh, Protestant Christians, they'll tell you, oh, the house of Israel is mostly just a spiritual concept other than, you know, there's the Jews in Palestine. But other than that, when we talk about, oh, we're a covenant people or we're Israelites, it's just a spiritual concept. We're not literally Israelites and this isn't our literal history. But Nephi is explaining here, no, The Isaiah chapters are all about the house of Israel and they have to do with things that actually happen temporally. He says, which shall come upon the children of men according to the flesh. So the first principle to understand Isaiah is to understand that the house of Israel is a literal, tangible, and physical reality for the vast majority of members of the church. This is what President Joseph Fielding Smith says. He says, quote, The great majority of those who become members of the church are literal descendants of Abraham through Ephraim, son of Joseph. Those who are not literal descendants of Abraham and Israel must become such. And when they are baptized and confirmed, they are grafted into the tree and are entitled to all the rights and privileges as heirs, end quote. So Joseph Fielding Smith is explaining It's not true that, oh, most of the members are just adopted, or this isn't literally our bloodline back, but that for most members of the church, if you get your patriarchal blessing and you're told you're of the tribe of Ephraim, or you're of the tribe of Judah, or Manasseh, or Naphtali, or any of the other tribes, you, if you do your genealogy back, you are literally going to be a descendant. That blood, the blood of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is literally in your veins. And then we ask, well, what about those that are adopted into the church? Well, you have to understand that the process of adoption is also a very temporal process. This is what the prophet Joseph Smith taught. He taught that if you are adopted into the house of Israel through covenants, your physical and tangible blood actually changes. He says, quote, there are two comforters spoken of. One is the Holy Ghost, the same as given on the day of Pentecost, and that all saints receive after faith, repentance, and baptism. The first comforter, or Holy Ghost, has no other effect than pure intelligence. So here he's explaining, when you get the gift of the Holy Ghost, after you're baptized, what is that effect? It is pure intelligence. It is more powerful in expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, and storing the intellect with present knowledge of a man who is of the literal seed of Abraham than one that is a Gentile. 
So this is so fascinating. What is Joseph Smith saying here? He's saying that when the Holy Ghost comes upon someone who is literally of the blood of Abraham, that has that DNA and that blood in their veins, the effect of the Holy Ghost is more powerful than someone who doesn't have that blood. What he's teaching here is that the temporal body and the spiritual body are actually more connected than we usually realize. So he says, though it may not have half as much visible effect upon the body, for as the Holy Ghost falls upon one of the literal seed of Abraham, it is calm and serene, and his whole soul and body are only exercised by the pure spirit of intelligence. While the effect of the Holy Ghost upon a Gentile is, now listen to this, this is fascinating, he says, is to purge out the old blood and make him actually of the seed of Abraham. So when we talk about someone being adopted into the house of Israel, it's a physical adoption. Their blood literally changes. Joseph Smith says that man that has none of the blood of Abraham naturally must have a new creation by the Holy Ghost. And in such a case, there may be more of a powerful effect upon the body and visible to the eye than upon an Israelite. While the Israelite at first might be far before the Gentile in pure intelligence, end quote. So Joseph Smith is clarifying here that for most of us who are of the house of Israel, uh, we don't have as much of a blood change as someone who is a pure Gentile who says, I want to come into this covenant. I want to be part of Abraham's family. And when they come in, they literally are changed. Uh, but this is more of a rare occurrence. This is not as common um, of a thing because most members of the church, like President Joseph Fielding Smith said, they have the blood of Israel. They're, they're literally of Abraham. Uh, Brigham Young made this statement. He said, the set time has come for God to gather Israel and for his work to commence upon the face of the whole earth. And the elders who have arisen in this church and kingdom are actually of Israel. Take the elders who are now in this house, and you can scarcely find one out of a hundred but what he is of the house of Israel, right? Brigham Young is saying it's very rare to have a Gentile that's a member. Um, he says they're mostly of the house of Israel. He says, will he go to the Gentile nations to preach the gospel? Yes. And gather out the Israelites wherever they are mixed among the nations of the earth, end quote. Now, a key thing to realize here is, is this because we you know, are we saying we hate Gentiles and we don't like them and they're not going to be part of the church or included? No, 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 not at all. Uh, we're talking about more, it's about who wants the gospel. It's not about uh, so much about your race or who you are or not. God is not a respecter of persons. It's about who wants the gospel and God is going to be sending children that want the gospel, that want these covenants through these bloodlines. And the key though with that is those bloodlines of Israel are mixed all over the earth. And we're going to talk about that. They are found in every race, every culture, every country, everywhere you go, there are Israelites scattered across the world. And we're going to talk about that more. But this is just a foundational key because if you think, oh, we're all adopted and the house of Israel isn't a literal thing, I can promise you the book of Isaiah is going to be a mystery. It's going to be so complicated. But if you just understand, okay, the house of Israel, it's a literal thing. I am part of Israel. All of a sudden, it becomes a lot more simple.
So let's talk for a minute just about what is the house of Israel, right? If that concept right there, you're hearing that term, but you don't really understand where it comes from, uh, we need to lay some groundwork there. So let's go back to the very beginning, the very creation, the beginning of the history of this earth. You have Adam created. He's born in the presence of God, and he he grows up in the presence of God. He grows up in a perfect environment where there's no sin, there's no suffering, but there's also no joy and no happiness, and the, he and Eve are not able to have children. They're not able to grow and become like God. So, of co- course, the fall occurs, and the entire story of really the history of this planet is about Adam and his children trying to get back into the presence of God. They were once in his presence. Now they've fallen. They've been separated. Now they want to get back. So Adam, we understand according to Latter-day Revelation and the teachings of Joseph Smith, Adam actually lived in North America. We know that the Garden of Eden was actually located in Independence, Missouri. Um, And if you didn't know this, this comes from different statements in the history of the church uh, with Joseph Smith. So the Garden of Eden was located in Independence. After Adam and Eve were driven out, they went to a place called Adamondayamon, which is also in Missouri. So Adam and Eve, they go to Adamondayamon, and there they start raising their children, and they start trying to teach their children how to come back into the presence of God. And this is a whole other history you can study in the Bible and in the Pearl of Great Price. Um, It's not the topic we have today, but for the purposes of understanding Isaiah, it's very critical to understand that the role of a father, beginning with Adam and to today— The purpose and the mission of a father is to bring his children back into the presence of God. This was Adam's passion. This was Adam's driving um, motivation. He was once in the presence of God. Then he was forced out um, through transgression of law. And then he worked and was able to come back into that presence. And he wanted to help his children find that joy as well. Similar to Lehi with the tree of life. Uh, This is a statement from Lectures on Faith that was put together by Joseph Smith and other leading brethren uh, in Kirtland, Ohio, in the early days of the church. And in Lectures on Faith, it gives this insight into the father's role. It says, quote, After any portion of the human family are made acquainted with the important fact that there is a God, the extent of their knowledge respecting his character and glory will depend upon their diligence and faithfulness in seeking after him until... Like Enoch, the brother of Jared and Moses, they shall obtain faith in God and power with him to behold him face to face. So what is this statement saying? Basically, it's saying once any of us come to understand, you know, there's a God out there and he's a real person, our mission and our the message of the gospel is to say, okay, we want you to be able to come into his presence. Why? Why do we care about being able to see the face of God? Because if you want to become like him and you want to achieve the joy he has, you have to know who he is. You don't have to know how he lives. And you don't learn that from just books. You don't learn that just from hearing someone else's experience. You have to experience it for yourself. So this is the object of the gospel is coming to have that mission. But the statement continues, quote, it was human testimony and human testimony only 
that excited this inquiry in the first instance in their minds, right? What motivates a person to say, you know what? I want to come into the presence of God. I want to achieve this. I want to find that joy. It was the credence they gave to the testimony of their fathers. This testimony having aroused their minds to inquire after the knowledge of God. The inquiry frequently terminated, indeed always terminated, when rightly pursued in the most glorious discoveries and eternal certainty, end quote. So what this statement is saying is from the beginning of the history of the world until today, God's children have heard the testimony, hopefully from their fathers. If you have righteous fathers and if you don't have a righteous father, then um, the fathers in the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Nephi, Lehi, Mormon, Moroni, who testify and say, I have spoken with God. I know that he lives and this is what he is like. And you want to taste of this fruit for yourself. And that testimony stirs within you this desire. Yes, I want to obtain that knowledge for myself. It is that testimony of your fathers that arouses in your mind to inquire after the knowledge of God. So this is what Adam did. And this is the order that God set up. Fathers bear testimony to their children of their experiences. And then those children follow the examples of their fathers back into the presence of God. They pass the testimony to their children and the pattern continues. This is Elder Bruce McConkie. He said, with the placing of man on earth, the Lord began by patterning earthly government after that which is heavenly. So this is key. This pattern of fathers helping their children come into the presence of God didn't start on this earth. It started in the pre-mortal life. It started in heaven. It says a perfect theocratic patriarchal system was set up with Adam at the head. This system prevailed in large measure among righteous men from Adam to the establishment of Israel in her promised land. When the people prevailed upon the Lord to let them be ruled by kings, as were the apostate Gentile nations, right? So this is actually the origin. Sometimes members hear patriarchal order and uh, and it jives us wrong because we've been so corrupted in our day with so many abuses and false uh, portrayals of what the patriarchal order really is. But from God's perspective, it's just this beautiful order of fathers being redeemed, fathers coming back into the presence of God, overcoming um, their weaknesses, being cleansed through the atonement. They're co- they come back into the presence of God and then they reach down and they help their children. And that pattern continues. And God wants this family order to help his children come back home. But whenever the house of Israel has gone into apostasy and they've rejected the gospel, They have lost this understanding. So they start saying, we want kings like, you know, all the other countries. This is what happened in the days of Samuel, right? Um, and, And God is saying, guys, no, this is not the plan that I have for you. But Elder McConkie continues. He says, in these early days, the church government itself was also patriarchal in nature, right? It's family based. From Adam to the flood, the presiding church officer was always both a high priest and a patriarch, and the office descended from father to son. This order of priesthood itself was called the patriarchal order, end quote. Now, if you want a perfect example, 
look at the Book of Mormon. How many youth programs in the Book of Mormon are used to solve issues with delinquent youth? Zero. If you look in the Book of Mormon, every time Mormon is trying to teach us about a young man being struggling or needing help or being mentored, it is always through fathers. You have Nephi and Lehi. You have Enos and Jacob. You have the sons of Mosiah working with Mosiah, right? You have Alma the Younger and Alma the Elder. Um, you then have Alma the Younger working with his sons, Helaman, Corianton, and Shiblon. And then you have uh, their descendants. The line continues. You have the other Helaman working with Nephi and Lehi. And you have Moroni, of course, working with Mormon. It's this pattern, fathers and sons. Why? Because this is the pattern of the gospel. So now let's come back to what is the house of Israel? Well, the house of Israel originates with Abraham because beginning with Adam and all the way down to Abraham's day, you had these righteous fathers working with their sons and helping their sons and their daughters come back into the presence of God. But when you come to Abraham's day, you find that the people have gone into apostasy. And Abraham grows up with a very corrupt and abusive father. His biological father tries to kill him. And Abraham is lost, but there's something deep within his soul that says, there's something more. And I want that something more. Uh, this is his own account in Abraham chapter one, verse two. He says, finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. So he's saying, I knew there was something better out there. I knew there was a better way for happiness and peace and rest. And so he went back. He went back to his fathers, to Adam, to Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, to Melchizedek. And he says, having been myself a follower of righteousness and desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, right? These are Abraham's goals. He wants to be that prince of peace, to get revelation. He wants to have that joy. He says, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. So that is what Abraham did. He went back. And according to the book of Jasher, which is an apocryphal text, it says that Abraham went back to Noah and his son Shem. Um, Noah and Shem were actually alive when Abraham was alive. And, and he goes back to them and remained with them to learn the instruction of the Lord and his ways. It says, Abram served Noah and Shem, his son, for a long time. So Abraham went back. He couldn't go with his biological father, his family, the culture he grew up with was corrupt. Um, and so he went back. He went back to the fathers. And the book of Abraham tells us how he achieved that. He did receive that priesthood, a priesthood that went all the way back to Adam. So with that priesthood and Abraham looking back, he received specific promises from God. God led him on a journey. And God required a lot of sacrifices of Abraham. A lot of times we talk about Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac, but Abraham had already lived 
decades of sacrifices uh, before that. Uh, Abraham was forced to leave his home. He went through famines. Um, his wife's life was in danger numerous times. There were, there were so many experiences Abraham had to go through where he had to put his life on the line for what the Lord was asking. But in return for those sacrifices and in return for his faith, Abraham receives promises. God gives him specific things. He says, okay, Abraham, you have been faithful. I'm going to promise you that you are going to be the father of many nations. Your children are going to be so expansive. They're going to start numerous countries and nations and cultures. And he's promised, God promises him, your children will receive these same blessings and covenants that will allow them to be happy. He says, Abraham, you've made so many sacrifices. I'm going to guarantee that your children are going to have a chance. They're going to have a chance to receive baptism and celestial marriage. They're going to have the priesthood in their life. They're going to receive inheritances, temporal, physical inheritances of land. Uh, why would land be important? Well, how are you supposed to become like God? How are you supposed to raise a family? How are you supposed to um, build a kingdom without property? And so Abraham's children are promised land and they're promised eternal increase that would exist for eternity. So Abraham receives these promises, and you can only imagine Abraham's feelings when he does, realizing, you know what, it was worth all of that hardship that I went through. My children will have something better forever. This is why it is significant to be of the house of Israel. If you are an Israelite, your father Abraham literally killed himself so that you could have access to the gospel today, that you could have access to have joy, to have answers, and to be able to build a better future for yourself and your own family. So Abraham has this covenant and these promises, and he passes it to Isaac, and Isaac also receives promises. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, Jacob receives promises, and Jacob has 12 sons. And of those 12 sons, um, the main primary birthright son was Joseph. This is Joseph of Egypt. And so Joseph of Egypt has the birthright, but all of Jacob's sons and their children inherit these blessings of Abraham. And Jacob goes through an experience. It's essentially his endowment. If you understand what it's talking about in the book of Genesis, where Jacob receives a new name and his name is changed to Israel. And that is where we get the term, the house of Israel. That is who we are. So the history of the house of Israel has been just a continual story of ups and downs because it's always this battle of the adversary fighting to cut the children off from knowing their fathers, uh, destroy their knowledge of their fathers, destroy their history, destroy their access to those covenants. And it's this struggle of God fighting to keep the promises he made to Abraham. He promised Abraham, your children will have access to these covenants. And the adversary is fighting. The opposition is fighting. We're going to cut these children off from their fathers. And so it's the struggle all the way to our day. That is the story of Isaiah. That is the whole point of the book of Isaiah. So this is a very important concept, this concept of fathers and children. This is a statement from Elder Joseph Fielding McConkie commenting how too often we forget this understanding of fathers and covenants centered in fathers. He says, quote, forgotten is the fact that salvation is a family affair. 
that God made covenants with our ancient fathers and that those covenants center in blessings that were also promised to us. Without those fathers, Joseph Hilding McConkie says, we become theological and spiritual orphans. In the words of Malachi, we are left without root or branch, right? We're cut off from understanding where we came from, and that cuts off any access of our children or our branches being passed, those blessings as well. We suppose we can have salvation independent of family responsibilities, he goes on to say. The whole thing is akin to going through life without really knowing your parents or your family. So that is the first principle. You have to understand that the house of Israel is a literal, tangible thing. It's a tangible covenants. It's a tangible bloodline. And then the second thing you have to understand, and this is going back into 1 Nephi 22, so we got to get back into Isaiah here, is that Israel was scattered. 